Hi, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. Collaboration between multiple specialties and disciplines is necessary in the NICU to provide comprehensive care for infants with complex medical conditions and to also address the many needs of the families. By working as a team, we can guide interventions that are developmentally supportive, family-centered, evidence-based, and collaborative. As we discussed in previous episodes, anytime we can reduce the stress of the infant, it helps with healing and, most importantly, development. How can we as NICU nurses utilize other disciplines to create a more positive environment for our patients and their families? One specialty that is commonly seen in the NICU is speech therapy. Speech-language pathologists focus on developmental outcomes relating to communication, cognition, swallowing, and feeding. They play a vital role in the evaluating individualized feeding objectives, working with the NICU team to accomplish those, and providing valuable information to families about interaction and feeding strategies so that everyone is working towards the same goal, to grow and thrive. So how does speech therapy fit into the NICU? If your unit doesn't have a speech therapist, how can you implement feeding strategies and manage parental and medical expectations regarding feeding interventions to successfully transition the infant to home safely? Today, we are going to talk to a speech-language pathologist, Laura Chernick, to get some insight into her role in the NICU and how we, as NICU nurses, can utilize our expertise to improve patient outcomes. Let's get right into it. Hi, Laura. I appreciate you taking your time to join us today. Hi, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you about this topic. Yeah. So can you tell us what the role of a speech-language pathologist is in the NICU? <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Um, I, I can't tell you across all the hospitals I've worked in um, how many times I'm either waiting to get off the elevator for the NICU or waiting for the NICU doors to open up after I swipe my badge and somebody will look down and say, oh, a, a speech pathologist. Uh, little early to be starting that down here, huh? So yes, babies can't talk. So why are we in the NICU? Believe it or not, our, our biggest role that we have there is on feeding and swallowing. We're really there to support safe and efficient feeding and to help a lot of the babies that we see there um, become successful oral feeders. We do have a couple of other different roles. While that is kind of our, our biggest area and, and population that we see and the number one reason why we're usually consulted. Um, but we also, for babies who are in the NICU for extended periods of time, we will work on some early communication and, and language therapy. And for our babies who also have tracheostomies, we can sometimes do some Passy-Mirror valve trials in coordination with ENT and our respiratory therapists. And I think the other really big piece is obviously babies can't talk, they can't communicate to us, but one of our roles is also to interpret an infant's behavior. That's really their method of communicating to us. And really our biggest part is interpreting their behaviors as communication during their feedings to help them become the most successful that they can be. So I feel like the um, one controversial topic or, or issues that I think a lot of NICU nurses have um, is cue-based feeding versus volume-driven feeding. You have some <laughs> nurses that will feed that baby until they finish that bottle despite any stress signs that the baby may be having um, or just want to be the one that says, hey, I got that baby to finish their feed and why can't this nurse only give the baby, you know, a half volume? But, you know, we really 
are really interested more on how well they're feeding and the positivity of the of the oral you know oral experience for that baby. Um, so can you kind of tell us your thoughts on um, infant Q-based feeding versus volume driven feeding? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know we're definitely uh, these days trying to shift more towards that Q-based feeding. Um, the older model was volume driven um, and not by any malintent. Um, feeding is typically the last thing to come along for these babies it can really prolong their length of stay. And so there can be a lot of pressure to push the feeds um, to get the babies home. It's, it's not because parents or nurses have any malintent or want to do any harm to the baby. But a lot of times there is that pressure. Oh, I got this baby to, to take their full feed, or I got them to take their feed at nine and 12 today. And, and, you know, then you know, now they don't want to take anything at the three o'clock because it was a different nurse or someone else fed them. And, (laughs) you know, I I always say, first of all, it typically isn't always the feeder that can kind of get someone to take more volume, especially as we move towards getting into this cue-based approach. A lot of times it has to do with the baby. But this volume-driven approach and really trying to focus on the intake rather than the quality of the feed can really put a lot of stress on the baby. And people will see that the baby is kind of all done, but, and maybe the baby's falling asleep or pushing the bottle out of their mouth, but they only have that 10 mLs left to take. It's 10 mLs, and then we don't have to push it through the tube. We don't have to use the tube at all today because this is the last feed of the day. But the baby's asleep, they're disengaged, and they may try, try to push that feed. Sometimes in order to get increased volumes, they may also increase the flow rate. The baby might stop sucking and so they'll twist and jiggle the bottle around to stimulate that sucking reflex. They might unswaddle the baby so then you have this really low tone baby that's just kind of hanging out there with their arms down, um, just really in an unsupported position to try to wake them up and stir them. But really, this, these experiences can be very stressful for these babies, and it can impact their overall brain development. So we know this now. We know that babies' brains change based on stress responses. So our shift now is really towards neuroprotection and creating positive experiences around these feeds trying to limit those stressful responses throughout a baby's entire day, right? Not just with their feeding, throughout their entire day, because every interaction we have with these babies impacts their neurological development. And it's no different with feeding. So if a baby is getting stressed out with their feeding, that's one additional impact potentially to their neurological development. So if we can make a shift towards a cue-based feeding approach, that is really centered around neuroprotection and creating positive experiences for these babies, we can potentially have better long-term feeding outcomes because a lot of times these babies don't just leave the NICU and they're great feeders. A lot of these babies, especially ones with complex medical conditions or respiratory conditions, their feeding difficulties can be long-term and some of them even last 
up until they're toddlers. So they don't just get discharged from the NICU and, and they might have been taken full feeds at, at, at time of discharge. But then later on, once they're home, they have changes in development and you can, you can see that they start to struggle again. So with the cue-based approach, it's really infant-guided. It's going based on the infant's cues, and it's a relationship between the caregiver or the feeder and the infant. And it's really paying close attention to the infant's stress cues, some of which can be very subtle. And really looking at their swallowing, what does their breathing look like, their physiological stability, um, their posture as it relates to feeding, are there any changes in that, and their overall state. Um, so if we can take a look at those cues that the baby is giving us, when we see a change, if they're starting to have increased worker breathing, nasal flaring, gulping, anterior loss out of the front of their mouth, their eyebrows are furrowed, they're splaying their hands, those are all stress signs and signs the baby is trying to tell us, I need a break, I need to stop. Um, so if we can really, again, as I mentioned earlier, our part of our role is really interpreting a baby's behavior and really helping others to interpret their behaviors as well. So if we can use this cue-based approach to interpret and listen to what the baby is telling us, really in the long term, it can lead to better feeding outcomes. Yeah, and that's really helpful to have speech pathologists that are on the unit to explain this to the families as well, um, because I think they start to get frustrated. Oh, why is my baby only taking so much? But if you explain to them just if they have a successful feed and they aren't stressed and it maybe only took half volume, a quarter of volume, that's a positive experience and that's going to lead to better outcomes, you know, in the long run. So it, it's very helpful to have, you know, different support systems available to us to able to, you know, explain this to parents um, so they, you know, can be an active part in feeding their baby as well and, and get excited when maybe the baby only took 15 cc's, but it was a great feed. Um, and that's, I think that empowers them to, you know, continue forward and, you know, really learn to bond with their babies and, and have a better um, experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. The NICU can really impact that parent infant bonding and relationship. Um, and a large part of our role is parent education. And we usually will do a little bit of a systematic approach to give and build the parents confidence in terms of feeding sometimes these very medically fragile babies. Um, and it'll usually start with us feeding the baby and the parent observing. And we're talking through, I'm telling them exactly what I'm seeing. Oh, you see your baby, they're they're furrowing their eyebrows. They're pulling away from the bottle. They're dribbling from the front of their mouth. These are the things that I'm seeing. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? And then the parents are, usually say yes. So then sometimes we'll try to implement a strategy and I'll say, oh, look, now we're not seeing that dribbling from the corner of their mouth. They look a lot more comfortable. We're not seeing them splay their hands. They're breathing a lot more comfortably now. And the parents typically will agree and they'll be like, oh yes, I absolutely see the difference. And then the next time around, we'll support the parent. So the parent will feed, we'll walk them through that, we'll support them and tell them what we're seeing. And a lot of times towards the end of that feed, once they kind of get going, they've got it and they feel a lot more comfortable. 
And I, I think it allows them to be more engaged in the baby's care, um, allows them to better understand the baby and really build that relationship. So you mentioned um, that you like to teach the parents um, and even the nurses some strategies to um, kind of deter any of these stressful signs that these babies are showing. Can you sh- tell us a little bit about that or expand on that? Um, what are these strategies that um, we could do to help these babies? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So <laughs> I think one of the other really hot topics is around nipple flow rate. And it kind of goes back to that volume-driven approach uh, where we may want to increase the flow rate because we want to get the baby to take the volume. But really what we know now is that decreasing the flow rate and sometimes slowing the flow of the nipple can really help the baby be a more successful feeder. It can help them with that suck, swallow, breathe coordination. And it can help decrease a lot of those stress cues. Um, and so a lot of times I, I really steer clear of a very fast flow nipple. Um, certainly we never recommend cutting a nipple for a baby ever. I, I still sometimes will see that some parents, um, will come in, uh, from, from other places or as an outpatient, even for former NICU babies and somewhere along the line that, that started to become a successful strategy to get them to take the feed. But if a baby has too fast of a nipple flow rate, we're really overwhelming them. We're really stressing them out. And then when we also think about the safety of the feeding, if the flow rate of the nipple is too fast and they're getting milk in too quickly and they just can't handle it, they're at increased risk for aspiration. They just can't coordinate closing off their airway in coordination with the flow of the milk that's going into their mouth. And so their risk of aspiration can also be significantly higher if the flow rate doesn't match where they are with their overall development and coordination. Um, Some of the other strategies that we also will typically implement in addition to just changing a nipple flow rate is positioning. Um, So one of my favorite positions for a baby is an elevated side lie position. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of this. It may seem like a, a very strange and unnatural position for bottle feeding. You have a baby on their side, their shoulder and their ear are pointing down towards the ground and the others are pointing up towards the ceiling. Um, And usually you have them a little bit elevated either on a pillow or um, sometimes I'll just do it on my leg as well. Um, And it just seems so unnatural for bottle feeding. But what I always tell parents when they see me do it, and and again, I'm always explaining what I'm doing to parents. I say, I know this seems a little bit strange, but if you think about breastfeeding, this is actually a very natural position for babies to feed in. When they breastfeed, they actually feed on their side. The reason I want to do this with the bottle feeding is because it can help them better coordinate that suck, swallow, breathe pattern. It can also reduce their energy expenditure in terms of um, their breathing pattern. Their diaphragm doesn't have to work so hard against gravity in that position. The other really great benefits, like a three-in-one deal with uh, this side lie positioning, is it can decrease the flow rate of the milk. Again, so we've decreased the flow rate with the nipple potentially, but if the baby may need a little bit more support, if you think about if you hold an open water bottle upside down, it's just all going to flood out. If you put that bottle on the side, it won't come out as quick. Well, the same is true if we have the baby on their side 
and, and the bottle is in their mouth, the bottle is now on its side. So it doesn't have that same force going in as well. So it can help them coordinate things a little bit better and improve safety. Another really common strategy that we'll use if we see a baby is showing some maybe overt or subtle signs of distress during a feed is pacing. It sounds like it's something really complex. It's, it's really not. Um, the most complex thing is, is interpreting the infant's cues and figuring out when do they need to be paced. So what is pacing? It's simply forcing the baby to take a break to breathe. So when we talk about suck-swallow-breathe coordination, we like to see a baby have a nice suck-swallow-breathe, suck-swallow-breathe, suck-swallow-breathe. A lot of times what we see for these babies, especially premature babies or babies who have some respiratory conditions, increased worker breathing, they tend to go suck, swallow, suck, swallow, suck, swallow, suck, swallow, suck, swallow, suck, swallow. <laughs> and then they're just working really, really hard. So we, And then they, they tend to tucker out really quick. They just have decreased endurance and then you start to see them shut down because they've just gotten stressed out. They didn't have a chance to breathe. And now they're just shutting down and get disengaging in that feed. So one way we can help better support them is through pacing, where based on the infant's cues and when they're starting to show some signs of distress or right before that point, if we can figure out their pattern, get them right before they maybe furrow their brow or pull away slightly from the bottle, or if we really just see they're going and going and not taking a break, we take, I like to take the bottle out of their mouth. Um, some people will tilt the bottle down um, or move it to the side of their tongue, but sometimes the baby will just kind of keep sucking, even though you've tilted it down so there's no milk or formula in the nipple, um, or they'll keep munching and it'll kind of delay that needed breath that they need to take. So my preferred personal method of pacing is to take the bottle out of their mouth as long as it doesn't fully um, disorganize the baby afterwards. And then I just rest it on their lips. And um, I tell the parents or the nurse, if it's a newer nurse and they're asking me some questions in terms of interpreting these strategies or using these strategies. Um, and I say, the baby will let you know. The baby will let you know when they're ready to take the bottle. And a lot of times on command, the baby will open their mouth, you put the bottle in, and then they can suck usually, you know, four to five sucks. Some babies can go five to six sucks before they need that pacing. Some babies can go 10 to 15 sucks before they need that bottle taken out. It's really, it's not a cookie cutter approach. It's really looking at each individual infant and also on a day-by-day -day basis because these babies can make progress on a day-by-day -day basis. Their brains are changing so quickly and their medical status can change really quickly. So every time we see them is a new assessment. It's not a cookie cutter approach and it's really just learning to see what are they telling us? What behaviors are they showing us? And how can we best support them? That's so true. Like sometimes you've taken care of a baby that's struggling for a few days and all of a sudden I, I, a light bulb goes on and they pick it up and they take it and they, you know, run with it. So, you know, it's, it's really cool to see that happen. And, you know, the parents get very excited when they finally pick it up. So that's what I always tell my parents, like they're going to get it. Like one day it's just going to come to them and they'll fly. Yes, and one of my favorite kind of things to tell parents, a lot of times they just want their babies to eat so badly. And they're like, "What? how can we make them eat more? How can we do this better? And I say, there's two pieces to the puzzle. 
this is what we're doing. We've, we've changed the flow rate of the bottle. We have them in this position that's working. We have them in this elevated side leg, or some babies do better in a semi-upright position. Again, it's, it's infant specific. We're pacing them, um, you know, and, and we're respecting the cues that they're giving us. That's what we can do to help make these feeds successful. But the other piece of the puzzle is really the baby. And so part of it is just that time factor, letting them grow and develop. Um, and then, like you said, I tell them the light bulb will click. It will click. I can't tell you when, but it will happen. So this is what we can do in the meantime to help them get there more successfully and potentially even sooner rather than just making this a constantly stressful experience. Um, babies are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. And so if they have repeated stressful experiences, they're no longer going to want to engage in that. So there are some babies in the NICU that aren't ready to eat due to some medical condition. Um, what are some ways that we can support them while waiting to initiate feet? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Some of these babies can wait a very long time before they're they're ready to feed. Can be for a number of different reasons, from a respiratory standpoint, GI standpoint, other medical conditions. Um, some of our babies aren't even ready to eat until they're maybe four or five months corrected, uh, for a number of different factors. Like I said, um, so what we typically recommend is to again, it goes back to providing those positive experiences, providing positive oral stimulation. Um, some of our babies are averse and orally averse right from the beginning, can be from being intubated for so long, or maybe they have a tracheostomy, um, or they've just had a lot of negative experiences earlier on, on and in and around their face. So the best thing that we can do is try to provide some positive experiences in and on and around their face and mouth um, so that we can help start that process. Um, and what we recommend is positive oral stimulation. So sometimes I'll have a glove finger and I'll, I'll if some babies will allow me into their mouth, you know, gently massaging their gums, seeing if they'll tolerate some stimulation to their tongue and their palate obviously encouraging a pacifier if they'll allow it into their mouth to help develop some of those sucking skills. And if a baby tolerates that, um, working potentially on some pacifier dips where we'll dip the pacifier in some milk to provide them some small taste that they can manipulate um, and also to just give them some oral experiences in that way. Some babies aren't quite ready for those things. Some babies are so averse that you touch their lips or their cheek and they automatically get distressed. And so for some of those babies, it's, it's finding out where is the point that they don't show those signs of distress. So for some babies, I'll start at their hands and I'll kind of like work my way up their arms and figure out like, okay, where is that sensory spot that you're starting to get stressed out at? And I kind of equate it to climbing a ladder. So you work your way up or if they'll tolerate, you know, you stroking their cheeks, but then they start to break down at their lips. Okay, well, let's figure it out. It's kind of like climbing up the ladder. And then when you maybe get up to the third rung, we see signs of stress, we'll go back down and we start climbing it again. And when we're providing this oral stimulation, my kind of rule of thumb is the best that I can is 
I'd rather have a shorter session than a really long one and waiting for the baby to just get really, really worked up and stressed out. I'd rather end when they're still nice and calm and organized. And maybe they had about, you know, 15, 20 minutes of this, or maybe they only had five to 10 minutes, wherever they're at, really trying to keep things positive and limit that association of stressful responses. Now, do you recommend the nurses at the bedside kind of doing this strategy as well? Or do you think it should just be limited to like once a day or when we find that they're cueing us that they might tolerate? Yeah, that's another really great question. Um, So this is definitely something that if I come in for an evaluation and the baby is not ready to eat and will often get consulted just to work on some of these pre-feeding skills, uh, that's, that's what we call them. They're not quite ready to eat, but but we're thinking about it at some point in the future. And so I'll, I'll educate parents on how they can best provide this oral stimulation. Again, teaching them what are the infant's stress cues, what can they tolerate, and how do we kind of help to slowly advance them. Um, it generally is not a quick fix, unfortunately. It can take a little bit of time. And absolutely, our, our nurses here are, are wonderful. Um, and we even will put bedside plans up with just some strategies that they can do. So any caregiver, as long as, you know, the baby is calm, awake, and not stressed out, you know, a a bad time to do it would probably be like after a a trach change or after a a wound uh, care change or something like that, where they've been very worked up and stressed out. It's trying to find them when they're at a good spot so we can work on this. And that gives the parents something to do for their baby, and it, and it helps make things just a little bit easier for them when they're in the NICU. I, I always try to find ways that the parents can bond, and I, and I think that's a great way, um, especially when they're caring for like a medically fragile child that's not quite ready to eat, and it gives them something to be a part of. Absolutely. I completely agree. You know, we talked about the importance of neuroprotection when we're introducing feeds and we're feeding our babies. But can you tell us a little bit about safety as it relates to feedings and how we can ensure that we are feeding these babies safely while implementing all the strategies that we discussed? Yeah, absolutely. So our number one job is safe and efficient feeding. You've probably all heard that before at some point in time. Um, So what are the cues that we look for in a baby. So we say overt signs and symptoms. The overt signs and symptoms that a baby might show us they're potentially aspirating are obviously coughing. That's the number one overt sign. Um, Some other signs we might see is congestion or a wet vocal quality. That kind of wet, junky sound in their throat is how I usually describe it. Um, certainly if they're having desaturations, apneas, bradycardias during feeds, we need to be concerned about safety for feeds. If this is something that's been going on for a while, um, any significant change in respiratory status that they've otherwise been doing well, recurrent upper respiratory infections, um, and things like that might be indicators that, that an infant is, is having some trouble. But typically those are the signs that you would see a little bit later on. But the tricky thing is, is not all babies are going to show us those more overt signs. Um, In fact, I think it's anywhere from 80 to upwards of 90% of babies will aspirate silently. So that makes our job a little bit harder. Um, And that's really when we have to look at their overall medical picture. 
What are they looking like from a medical standpoint, a neurological standpoint, an airway standpoint? And, and what are some of those more subtle signs that they might be showing us that they could be getting into some trouble? And then we can implement some of those strategies that we talked about to see if we can make the feed a little bit safer. And if we're still really not certain, then that's when we go towards an instrumental swallow study. And typically the one that we do is either called a video fluoroscopic swallow study, also known as a modified barium swallow study. The name of it can differ based on the institution that you work at. And that study is done in radiology. And I always kind of equate it to making a movie of the baby swallowing. I think it's personally very cool. And we can really see where is the material going while they're drinking from the bottle? Is everything going down their esophagus or is some of it going into their airway and are they aspirating? The trickier thing about the swallow study is it is just a moment in time. Baby is typically not, you know, we're not fluoroing the baby for 30 minutes like they would typically feed for. It's usually a short period of time, just a few minutes on and off. They're typically not taking their full volume feed. Some babies don't participate as well. There are a number of different factors. Um, so I, I always say, you know, that the swallow study is a moment in time. And even if we don't see the aspiration, we also look for other risk factors on the swallow study. Or if we clinically continue <laughs> to see this baby at bedside and they're still, you know, coughing or showing us some of those more overt signs that we didn't see during the swallow study, I think we need to take sometimes more of a conservative approach. Um, but the safety for feeds with these babies is, is probably the number one reason they're th we're there in the NICU and the number one reason we're consulted. Uh, we want to make sure these babies are safe. They don't always show us those more overt signs. And so we really need to be looking at some of those more subtle cues that they could be giving us that they might be getting into trouble. And uh, what are your thoughts on safety um, of oral feeding on increased respiratory support? So kids that are on uh, high-flow nasal cannulas, CPAP, um, requiring high you know, oxygen flow. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that's another hot topic. Um, you, you've got a few good ones today. <laughs> um, we don't recommend feeding above two liters. If you get, and certainly don't ever feed on CPAP, um, or like I said, any increased re uh, respiratory support above two liters high flow. The reason for that is you are blasting air in, into the infant, and it just is high probability for bolus misdirection. So it's going to go one way or the other. It's either going to go down into their esophagus or some, uh, some of it may go into their airway. Um, there was an interesting study that was completed as well that fed babies on CPAP um, and they actually ended up having to discontinue the study because all of the babies ended up aspirating and they deemed it kind of too dangerous to almost continue the study. I wish I had the name of that, that for you. Um, but here um, at CHOP, we, we do not feed above two liters high flow, um, and our medical team is really great about that. Um, there are very, very few um, circumstances where, where we may do some smaller trials based on the infant's condition and reason for the respiratory support, but generally our rule of thumb is, is nothing above two liters. <laughs> yeah, I just, I wish that that would be um, across the board because, you know, as a 
institution where we get babies from all over, you know, some institutions are still feeding these kids with high flow and CPAP, and then they come to other institutions and we have to stop, which is very frustrating uh, for parents, you know, when they were taking oral feeds and then now they have to get fed, um, you know, through an NG tube or OG tube. So, you know, that I, I hope that that practice stops and starts to change to um, lower flow feeding. But I had to ask because I know that that's something that everybody um, is talking about. Um, yeah, and again, I, I don't think any of that comes from any malintent. Um, I really think people, you know, the baby is sucking, they're showing feeding cues, they want to feed, they're old enough to feed. And I think um, sometimes it's viewed as kind of um, prolonging their stay if they don't have these oral experiences. But sometimes, again, if it becomes stressful or could potentially lead to aspiration, which could, you know, worsen any lung disease or anything like that going on. Um, so while it would be great to have some consistency, you know, I, I, I think it just comes down to more education. Um, and, and I really don't think anybody is trying to harm these babies. And it is, not, it is coming from a good place. It just... Um, you know, is, is again, just providing that education and that piece around that safety with feeds. Yeah. It's not a setback. It's more of a safety, a safety issue. And that's, that's our job when you come, you know, when you have babies coming in from a referring hospital is, is education. So, and that's why we have people like you for speech to help (laughs) tell these parents what, you know, is safe and what kind of strategies they can do to help, you know, their babies with uh, their oral motor skills. Yes, and I think you said it right. A lot of times um, it's not necessarily a setback um, with any change in a feeding plan that we might have to make for a baby. Um, When you think about kind of the more long-term serious consequences that could come as a result of it, um, this is just trying to prevent um, all of those other more serious things that could come from either, um, you know, an aspiration event or prolonged adverse events. experiences to feeding and everything like that. We're just trying to help these babies become more successful so that we don't run into more long-term or serious, more serious uh, medical conditions. So there are some NICUs that don't have speech therapists available. Um, do you have any tips or advice that you could give to these NICU nurses that are working without speech therapists? Yeah, so I wish there was a speech pathologist in every NICU, but you're right. Unfortunately, there's not. Um, so for nurses, I, I, I really encourage you to self-direct your learning um, and maybe take a continuing education course or perhaps someone have someone come into your unit that might be able to provide some further education. Another thing that I would recommend is if you really feel like this is an area of support that your unit could benefit from is, is to speak to leadership. You know, I I caution against blindly utilizing some of these strategies that we talked about today. If there's not a good solid foundation behind it, it really can take a skilled, specialized, trained eye to pick up on some of these subtle nuances that these infants have. So certainly speaking to leadership either to, 
work on getting speech pathology involvement in the NICU or bringing in some um, training aspects. Um, and then the, the third resource, which or third aspect, which kind of goes along with uh, self-directed learning. Um, I don't know her personally, but she is an absolutely wonderful speech pathologist named Catherine Shaker. And she really does a lot of work in the NICU around Q-based feeding and really focused on neuroprotection. And she has a really wonderful website that she developed um, called Shaker for Swallowing and Feeding. And she writes about a number of topics to help support these babies. You can also post some questions and somehow she manages uh, to write responses back. She just really does a nice job. I, I refer my students um, to the website a lot of times um, to help self-direct their learning on this topic or, you know, um, trainees. Um, and, and she just really, really is a great expert in the field and a really, really great teacher and really tries to support all of us out there to help better protect these babies. That's such excellent advice for nurses that don't have speech pathologists on their unit, but also all the advice that you have given us for all the strategies to improve feeding and also help these babies neurodevelopmentally. It's such an excellent example of multidisciplinary teams coming together to create better patient outcomes in a very family-centered approach. This collaborative is not only beneficial to the healthcare team and the nurses, but it really empowers our families to become confident caregivers for their infant, setting them up for a very bright future. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining us today and sharing all of your expertise. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Make sure you never miss an episode of NANCAST by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day.